This morning, I want to bring to a conclusion our sermon series, St. Luke's on Broadway, by looking at the longest-running musical in Broadway history, Phantom of the Opera. It opened in the West End in London back in 1986. It was hugely successful. And after a two-year run, it moved to Broadway, opening on January the 26th, 1988. It has now continued to be the longest-running musical in Broadway history. The facts of what this show has done really are so amazing. I, I just want to take a moment to read you a few of them. Longest-running musical in Broadway history with over 12,000 performances. It will celebrate its 30th anniversary in January of 2018. Nonstop, 30 years this January. It's already been running for 30 years at Her Majesty Theater in London, where it first premiered back in 1986. It's been estimated that more than 140 million people in 35 countries have seen this show. 140 million people. The original cast album sold 40 million copies. That's more than any cast album ever from any show. The gross receipts have exceeded $6 billion. Now, these statistics are really just incredible. As you know, the show originally is from a book by Gaston LaRue. Gaston LaRue wrote Phantom of the Opera. He was a, an investigative newspaper reporter. And as he began all of his investigating, he then began writing this serial story. And it finally would be published in French about 1909. It would be published in English in 1911. But he wound up saying, through all of his investigative reporting, that many or most of these facts were true. I guess we'll never know. No, he wrote the book. It came out. It was made into two movies. And when it was made into a movie, well, the phantom came off as the, the horrible monster type person. Something more of a Frankenstein. Very scary. Ghoulish. It was in 1984. Andrew Lloyd Webber was wanting to write a new musical. And he wanted it to be a romance. He had already had great success. Things like Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Jesus Christ Superstar, Evita, Cats. Now, he had had incredible commercial success with musical after musical, but now he wanted to do a romance, and he was trying to find the right one. I mean, he was familiar with Phantom of the Opera, but he certainly did not like the Phantom that he knew. He was in New York City. He had some time on his hands, and he went down to a, a used book fair and was just perusing when he happened to see the book Phantom of the Opera. It was selling for 50 cents, a used book. He picked it up and he read it. And now we had a whole different view of Phantom. There was a sense of compassion. It's like you reached out and you cared about the Phantom when you read the book. I believe that Andrew was able to relate to some of those emotions of the phantom. Because I believe that each one of us 
could relate to the emotion of the phantom. It turned out that he was married to Sarah Brightman. He married her in 1984. And he wanted to write this musical, this romance, for her. He wanted to write her a part that she could star in and show what a superstar she was. And so he decided that Phantom of the Opera was going to be the show. He called together his friends, Cameron McIntosh and Hal Prince. He threw out the idea to them. They liked the idea. And so they started working together on kind of the plot and how would it go and writing some songs. He then felt when he had the first act kind of in rough form, it would be good to present it to some just common people to see how they're reacting to it. And so he invited some people to his summer home. He invited those common people like Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> they, they came to the house and it was just old ordinary people like Colm Wilkerson that we've looked at before. A star is going to be singing the part of Phantom. Sarah would sing the part. Um, and everybody was very excited about what was going to be. They came, they watched it. And in the end, they enjoyed laughing. It was so fun. And Andrew went away going, this isn't supposed to be a comedy. We've got to work on this some more. And so they started working on it more. And then it kind of started to move towards a, a rock opera. Something more like Jesus Christ Superstar. And then as they had continued to work on it some more, it finally would end as a classical musical in an opera house with opera being a part of the show. It would go through such an evolution from the beginning to where it would finally end and be unique and have this incredible message. If you've not seen the show... There is such an important message. It really begins, the scene is set back in the 1880s. There's a young man, a boy named Eric. It turns out that he was born with a severely deformed face. And born with this face, it was a face that even his mother could not love. And she rejected him. He was put into a circus and in the circus, he then would have to wear a hat, a bag... And they would talk about the son of Satan until finally they would pull it off and people would see his face and they would gasp and react and it was just horrible. He was beaten. Well, one day when all this was going on, there in Paris where the circus was, there was a young woman who would grow up to be Madame Curie. She saw what was happening. She was his age and she responded and helped him escape and took him to the Paris Opera House so he could go down below underneath the Opera House and there was a subterranean lake and places where he could be and go and build his own world. He built a lair, his place, so that he never would have to see the light of day again. He was a genius, an engineer, a composer. He built his world. But then he always would begin to haunt the opera house. No one would ever see him, but you could hear him speak now and then. And there are things he wanted to go certain ways in the opera house. And people would talk about how the opera house is haunted. There's the phantom there in the opera. A woman came. She was a young woman who 
who was from Sweden, had been a chorus girl singing in the chorus. Her father was a famous violinist, but her mother died and then her father died. But before he died, he told her about the angel of music who would come. And so when she now came to the opera house, the phantom saw her. He fell in love with her. He believed in her ability and he begins to coach her and teach her. She would never see him, just hear him. And he worked with her until he felt she was ready. And then one night they were going to be having a, a show and Carletta was the, the soprano prima donna. And he made her to where she could not sing and perform. And it was Madame Geary who came forward and said, we have someone who could replace her. So Christine came on to sing. And oh my goodness, everyone was stunned. It was a huge success. And when she was through that night, she wanted to speak to the angel of music. And so it was, she Ask him, please reveal yourself to me. And on the night of such success, he finally did in the mirror. And she would see him. And then he would invite her into his world. She would go with him and he would take her down below the Paris Opera House to this subterranean lake. And of course, one of the most famous scenes, and you see the pictures, is when you have all this dry ice that's making all this smoke, and there's all these candles, and they're in a gondola, and she's in the gondola, and the, and the phantom is pulling his way along over towards his lair, a place of a different world. Now, just as an aside, when they were doing this in 1986, I mean, they were really pulling out the stops and making the, uh, the set so incredible, and they were really trying to go high-tech, and so they now had radio controls to be able to control this gondola as it moved through this subterranean lake with all the smoke coming up, and that's how they could guide it where it needed to go while the phantom looks like he's polling and singing. What they didn't know was they had now set up this radio-controlled system, and across the street was a firehouse, on the same radio frequency. <laughs> Nobody knew this until everything was going fine. Many shows into it. And then one night there was a fire. And they began broadcasting on that frequency. And here was this boat moving through this. <laughs> starts heading for the wings. I mean, it's heading off stage. And it goes off stage. And the Phantom just keeps on singing. It's not trying to pull, push this thing back onto stage. Just This is exactly how we planned it. Another night, everything was going fine. And then suddenly, there was a fire, and it started heading straight for the orchestra pit. People were clearing out as here came the gondola. No, it led to some interesting shows in the early days. But it's such a powerful scene. Music of the night. You remember how he gets her all the way to the lair, and there she sees herself, a mannequin, and she faints and he lays her in the bed. He goes over and he sits down to the organ in order to continue to compose music. And as he sits down and begins to compose, she comes too. She comes up behind him and she grabs the mask and she takes it off. And he screams. And he turns around and he is so angry. But then he begins to weep. 
saying, I want to look different. I want to be loved. Christine, who is pulled back, is moved with compassion and picks up the mask and gives it back to him. I think in that scene, you understand why this musical has played for 30 years. For it's in that scene that you and I and everyone can relate, for it is the fundamental of the human condition. We all wear a mask. We are all afraid. If you really see me for who I am, will you still love me? We all are afraid that if people know who we really are, we will be rejected. And so we wear a mask. We want to hide because we're afraid. What everybody really wants, well, it winds up coming in a song right after that, All I Ask of You, in which Raul is singing to Christine and they sing to each other, Love me. It's all I ask of you. Raul wants to be loved. Christine wants to be loved. The Phantom wants to be loved. We all want to be loved by a parent, by a spouse, by a child, a friend. By God. We all want to be loved. The great fear is if I take off my mask and you see who I am, will you still love me? That's exactly what the scripture lesson this morning in the book of John was really about. It's one of the most powerful stories we have in the Bible, and yet we only find it in the book of John. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. You know, we've been looking in John pretty much this entire series. And the reason that Wendy and I are excited about teaching on Wednesday Night Alive about John is because here in John you kind of get the, the mind and the spirit of Jesus rather than just what did Jesus do that you hear in the Synoptic Gospels. This story we read about this woman at the well. Understand the setting. What's going on is when you traveled from Galilee up north down to Jerusalem, in between was Samaria. And most Jews, if you left Galilee, would cross over the Jordan, go down outside of Samaria, and then come back across the river to go to Jerusalem. You would not go through Samaria. Because as the Bible told us very clearly, Samaritans didn't speak to Jews. They hated each other. It actually went all the way back to about 721 BCE. 721, when the Assyrians conquered this northern kingdom of Israel brought in some other people, foreigners, took out the elite, they intermarried with the Jews, and you had the Samaritans who said you're supposed to worship on Mount Gerizim rather than in Jerusalem. In Jesus' day, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other over something that happened 700 years ago. Now, when you and I are looking at the Middle East today, we sometimes forget how that is in the world. No, we think people get excited and angry over what happened last week or last month. It may be hundreds of years ago. 
700 years the Jews and the Samaritans hadn't been talking and hated each other. Jesus didn't cross the Jordan. No, he just came straight down through Samaria. And they stopped in a town. It was in the afternoon. They were hot. They were thirsty. And so the disciples went into town to get something to eat. And and it turned out that that Jesus was sitting at, at the well in order to get something to drink, Jacob's well. And here comes a Samaritan woman. Now, now scholars have thought maybe she's coming in the afternoon rather than when it's cool in the morning like everybody else would do because she didn't want to run into everybody else. And so she comes in the afternoon and here's Jesus and he says, would you give me something to drink? And she says, what in the world? What are you, a Jew, speaking to me, a Samaritan? Why are you, a man, speaking to me, a woman, Women were considered nothing, way below a man, a Samaritan woman. You do not speak to them. Why are you speaking to me? And Jesus said, if you knew who's speaking to you, you'd ask me for living water. That's what I want to give you. Living water so that you were never hungry again. You never have to say again, love me. That's all I ask of you. You can be known what it means to be loved by God. She is very confused and he says, go bring your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. You're right. You've been married five times. You're living with a sixth man. Sir, I sense that you're a prophet. And Jesus begins to explain to her, do you understand? We don't need to argue about worshiping on Mount Gerizim or worshiping in Jerusalem the days coming when we are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. There's a God for us all, Samaritans and Jews. There is God who loves you. To be treated with respect and dignity, to be told about one God who loves both, she goes back into town not knowing what to do. She goes in and starts telling the townspeople, the key line is, he told me everything I ever did. That's what it felt like to her. He knows everything about me. And he treated them with respect and dignity and talked to me about God's love for us all. The people would come out to visit with Jesus And again, this is one of those things you kind of miss when we know the story of the woman at the well. Jesus then stays in the Samaritan town for two days talking to the Samaritans. And when he leaves, so many of them believe. So many of them believe that maybe there is one God for Jews and Samaritans. Is it possible to take off our mask, to be vulnerable, to be loved. That's what I want us to think about this morning. And there really is just two things that I want to say. First of all, the world may see you one way. Be who you are. Don't live your life worried about what other people think. Don't live your life the way that other people think you ought to live it. Be who you are, who God has created you to be. 
You know, when Andrew Lloyd Webber was trying to cast the show, he knew how important it was to get Christine right. He had Sarah Brightman for that, but he had to get the Phantom right. And so he finally was looking around and decided on Steve Harley. Steve Harley was a great singer. People knew about him. He was in a rock band. And so he didn't just tell everybody he was going to be the Phantom, but he brought him in. He auditioned. He learned the part. They began to rehearse for five months, learning all the parts and the music. He helped create publicity. He helped to create all these uh, um, uh, promotions for the show. But he never would go public and say he's going to be the Phantom. As they got closer and closer to opening night, it was making Steve a little nervous. And he's going, you know, why don't we tell everybody I've been named the Phantom? The reason is because of what I shared with you earlier. It started as a comedy and then kind of moved to a rock moved to a, a rock opera, if you will, a Jesus Christ superstar type. But that's really not where Andrew wanted it to go. No, he wanted it to be more of that classical musical with an opera. And he just wasn't feeling comfortable about how Steve would present the Phantom. And so one day he was taking Sarah to her voice coach and he was sitting out there in the waiting room and he heard a man singing And he went, that's it. That's the phantom. Did not know who it was. It turned out it was Michael Crawford who had the same voice coach. He was in there rehearsing. And when he came out, Andrew said, would you come? I'd like for you to audition. And he came to audition. And and he went, you got the part. Well, now, Michael Crawford, he was known in England he was known because he'd always played a part in a, uh, a TV sitcom. And this TV sitcom, he had the part where he played that he was just kind of a silly comedian. Slapstick, running into doors, running into walls. I mean, no one really would see him playing a phantom, the leading man, the ladies' man. No, no one even knew if he could sing. When he, they announced Michael Crawford is going to play the part of the Phantom, oh, the media, the press went crazy going, what? He is such a silly comedian. How can anybody take him seriously? They were so critical of Michael. They were so critical of, of Andrew. What are you doing? Well, Michael worked very hard. And when opening night came, he was great. In fact, the next day, there's, there's newspapers that shows the headline, The Phantom Can Sing. They were shocked. He played the part so well and carried it so great. From there, he came to New York, and when he played in New York, he would win the Tony Award for Best Actor in a Musical. I mean, two years later, he was known as the big leading lady man. Everybody loved him and wanted to be around this debonair man, sex symbol in America, who two years before, everybody saw him as the silly comedian who could never play this kind of part. Fascinating thing, when opening night came along, Steve Harley went to the show with his wife. I can only imagine how hard that was for him. But he was the show and he watched Phantom. And when it was all over, they went out. His wife said to him, he was horrible. 
Horrible. You would have done it so much better. And Steve said, stop. Don't do it. If I had played Phantom, I would have done it different. But Michael Crawford, he was great. He was great. To be able to say, if I'm me, I'd have done it this way. He's going to be him. He does it that way. He can be great. Maybe I could have been great. Why does it always have to be just one person who's better than the other? Can you be who you are? Can you just be who you are to take off your mask, to be vulnerable and to be sincere and honest in who you are? You know, I look at this woman at the well and how did the world see her? Well, you kind of start getting some hints. Why did she come in the afternoon? Well, it's because she didn't really want to be around a whole bunch of other people. No, you get some hints, the whole idea. Well, you've been married five times. You're living with a sixth man. Now, you know, I went back and looked at that carefully. When you hear that, the first thought you have is, well, she must have been divorced five times. She must be horrible to live with. She must be a very loose woman out here living with a sixth man now. Bible really doesn't say that. She was living in a time with great disease and sickness. You know, why is it out of the room a possibility that she'd been married five times and all five husbands had died? And she found a sixth husband and he loved her very much, but he said, you know, past track record isn't so good. I don't think we're going to get married. <laughs> you know, I don't know. All I know is the world saw her one way and Jesus saw her a different way. A Samaritan woman who is a person of worth and of value and respect and I want to tell you about the living water that is offered to you. And so second, I believe that you've been given a gift Will you use it? This woman at the well was certainly given a gift. The gift of God's grace. She experienced that grace, but she had another gift, and that was the gift of a voice. Regardless of how people thought about her, she went back to town to say, let me tell you about this man. Let me tell you the way he treated me. A Jewish man, the way he treated me. Let me tell you what he had to say. We're going to worship God in spirit and truth. Let me tell you about him. And because she talked to them, because she used her voice with words of encouragement and love and reconciliation, the town came to meet Jesus. And in the end, two days later, when Jesus leaves, you have Samaritans who are wanting to get along with Jews and looking for one God. 700 years. And we're going to look at things different because she used her voice. You and I live in a time right now with such, such anger, so many insults and condemnation and divisiveness. You and I can be different. You have the gift of your voice. 
if you know the grace of God, then you can speak words that bring healing, words that bring forgiveness, words that are encouragement. You have a gift. If you know the gift of God's grace, you can use your voice. You know, Sarah Brightman, she has an amazing voice. I've loved learning more about her. I told you how she, uh, she came to West End when she was just 21 years old. She auditioned and got a part in Cats. And that's where Andrew met her. They would get married in 1984. It turned out, I told you how much he loved her and he wanted to write a, a musical just for her. And when he announced he was writing Phantom for Sarah, oh, the critics rained down on him. And I always thought, you know, wait a minute. If he's writing the musical, why can't he choose who he wants to play in the part? But oh, everybody's saying, this is not fair. This isn't right. How can you just give this to her? Well, I'm writing the musical. That's how I do it. No, no, they were so critical. The highbrow intellectual critic has always been down on Andrew Lloyd Webber. And I think how much that must hurt. Maybe why he related and understood Phantom. Can you take off your mask and just be honest and vulnerable when so often you feel rejection? Sarah would reflect on how how hard it was on him for supporting her. She talked about how much she received complaints and, and criticism. I was watching some interviews and it was of some of the media. Now, you know, it was 25, 30 years later and they were saying, you know, we were so unfair to her. We tried to hold her to such a high standard no one could live up to. We actually wanted her to fail. Have you ever had people wanting you to fail? Who have held you to such high standards there's no way anyone could live up to them? To still be yourself? to feel loved by God and to be yourself and to believe you have a gift to give that is a value. Sarah went out and she sang and she did super in West End, came to New York and again she was a conquering hero. She did so very, very well. I think because of the stress and all the things they went through, she and Andrew would ultimately divorce, though they are still good friends to this day. She didn't continue to be on stage as much after they divorced. She really turned more to a recording, a recording um, career, putting on concerts, traveling around the world. She's one of the most successful sopranos in the world. I mean, she has given concerts in 11 different languages. I mean, she's brilliant. And she goes and she sings, and, and, and I was watching so many different interviews and I was very impressed with where she is in life in her 50s. And I just wanted to read you a couple questions and answers to give you a feeling of really what she was saying. The interviewer said, How do you feel as you get ready to sing in front of 30,000 people in Madison Square Garden? And she said, I wake up and I'm grateful for what I get to do. It's a privilege to live in gratitude. Would you like to get to play Christine again in Vegas or in a movie? No, no, no. That's a part of a 20-year-old. I want to play my age. Well, you're still so young looking. I mean, what do you do to try to stay so young? I don't think in those terms. I want to be in the moment. 
I want to be passionate about life. I'm loving what I do. We all love hearing you perform. Your voice is amazing. And she is a person of faith. And she said, my voice is a gift. I have decided to develop it. I have to decide to bring it out. But my voice is a gift. Your voice is a gift. And if you know the grace of Christ, then you can use that gift to be a blessing and bring healing in the world. It is Christ who offers living water so that you understand the words to the song. No more talk of darkness. Forget these wide-eyed fears. I'm here. Nothing can harm you. My words will warm and calm you. Let me be your freedom. It is Christ who speaks to calm your fears. To give you the courage to be who you've been created to be. So that you can take off the mask and be free. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.